I guess I'm going to have to take care of all of these Winamp playlists and strip them all out since they've changed the behavior to program. It drives me crazy. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, November 7th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. It seems that the um, talk show chat is always giving me a hard time at program time. I clear my caches, I do everything I can to my browser, and I could never get into my own chat. The trolls never have a problem getting into the talk show chat, and they are there in large numbers, as usual. I had some problems... Um, Last week, I don't know if it affected anybody who actually listens to Christogenia, because it had nothing to do with our own mailing lists, which are secure. But somebody managed to exploit a security loophole in the content management system that we use, and, and every server on the Internet is um, constantly tried by certain people in certain countries, mostly in Asia. Every single server on the Internet is constantly tried, continually, with, with um, for, for security loopholes. And if you don't have them all patched all the time, somebody's going to get you. So we've been distracted with um, moving and, and the inconveniences of living in a two-room cottage and I hadn't been able to update some of my websites, so com was hacked last week. It only took me about an hour to figure out how, but what they did was they managed to exploit my server resources and, and send out a few thousand spam emails. The typical um, spam phishing emails that look like they're coming from FedEx, in this case, or, or something like that. So we've been able to patch that, but it's just um, my account of one of the small challenges that we face all the time being on the Internet. That could have happened to anybody, and, and it often does. Those people that um, send out those spams, they don't use their own resources in servers because that would be too inconvenient to um, actually have legitimate resources that, that are shut down because you're a spammer. So what they do is they constantly travel around the Internet seeking to exploit other people's resources. And, and they're, pretty, they're pretty adept at that. They do it well. So for the first time in, in um, five years of managing our own web servers have we been um have we been victimized by that um Yahweh willing it won't happen again anytime in the near future with that we will get on to our discussion of the epistles of Paul 1 Corinthians part 6 and I've subtitled this program the judgment of the saints and I've um Use that subtitle in two senses, because, as Paul states in 
this chapter, the saints, the people of Yahweh, shall judge the world. That's um, that's the ultimate meaning of the call to repay Babylon twice what she has, what she has taken from us, and the call in Micah to arise and thresh. The call that all Christians should be awaiting. All, by Christians I mean those of Israel, of true Israel, who are Christians. While discussing 1 Corinthians chapter 5 last week, although in that chapter Paul himself did not state anything explicit in regard to worldly governments, we noted the historical fact that Christians are powerless to execute the laws of Yahweh their God under the beast governments in which they have been and in which they are even now held as captives. Paul did explain the function of the worldly governments and the plan of God in Romans chapter 13 which we discussed at length just a few short months ago. Studying Paul's ministry and epistles, it is evident that the epistle to the Romans represents much of Paul's most fundamental teaching, since he had not yet been to Rome when he wrote that epistle. But since Paul had already spent a year and a half with these Corinthians, which we see in the book of Acts, chapters 18 and 19, chapter 18, I believe. And since after he departed from Corinth, he had written to them at least one epistle before this one, which we may see here in 1 Corinthians 5.9, we can rather safely assume that the Corinthians had already understood the things which Paul had also written to the Romans. This is especially true since, as Paul tells them in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he had already spoke all things to them in truth, indicating that he had already taught the Corinthians the fundamental aspects of the gospel and the prophets that he felt that he was obligated to teach them. Spending a year and a half in Corinth with them, I imagine he certainly did. Christians in the Roman Empire were in a position whereby they could not execute the judgments of the laws of Yahweh their God, part of their punishment. Examining the history of the children of Israel and their relationship to Yahweh through the prophets, we should note that this was an aspect of their own punishment and that the Christians in Israel would have to suffer it suffer it along with the sinners in Israel. The whole society being under the power of Satan, as the Apostle John tells us rather explicitly, Christians were being taught to come out from the society, meaning not to engage with the society and its sin, while at the same time necessarily having to coexist with the society. For this reason, ostensibly, 
The Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus in the Annals of Rome had written that Christians were incendiary and that they had antisocial tendencies. Another fundamental aspect of the Christian gospel which is related to this relative inability to execute judgment and which Paul did teach in 1 Corinthians in chapter 4 is that Christians should not condemn their brethren because only Yahweh God himself can justly judge those who are perceived to be sinners. In this regard, Paul said, Consequently, do not judge one prematurely until the prince should come who will both illuminate the secrets of darkness and make known the counsels of hearts, then at that time to each there will be approval from Yahweh. Therefore, because Christians could not condemn sinners, Paul also taught the assembly to ostracize, or perhaps a more appropriate word would be to excommunicate, those who commit unlawful acts, putting them out of their assembly and then praying that Yahweh God judges them. That is what Paul had meant in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 5 where he mentioned the delivering of sinners to Satan. Yet in spite of the common Roman Catholic perception, which is also something that the historian Flavius Josephus explained that the Pharisees in Judea had believed, sinners are not delivered to Satan so that they may spend an eternity in hell being tormented by demons. Rather, that is what happens to sinners here in this life. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved, not tormented, but saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And all of Israel shall indeed be saved. However, delivering a man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh meant separating a man from one's Christian community entirely. That's the real meaning of excommunicate, to put him out of your community. The model Christian community is found in the early chapters of the book of Acts. And there, Christians are depicted as forsaking their homes and living with a central community of believers, working, eating, and living together while sharing all things in common. Men pushed out of such a society for committing some sinful act would have to return to the world, where having nothing he would surely be taken advantage of and enslaved by the enemies of God for his chastisement. But not all early Christians attempted to form such communities. That was only one model. It didn't carry throughout 
the entire world where Christian where the Christian gospel was being brought. Many of the Christians turning to the gospel worked in the world and continued to work in the world and had houses and property in the world and kept them as Paul indicates in several places and which we also see in the book of Acts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 we read we read in another context but you have you not houses to eat and to drink in. So while Christians were expected to share their lives and belongings with their brethren for the benefit of Christ, they were not impelled to forsake everything that they had. Forsaking everything, how could you ever support your family or help your brother? Rather, your wealth should be put to work for the benefit of your Christian brethren while you also maintain yourself and your family. And we see Paul indicate that in every way in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 5 where he says that a man who cannot manage his own household shouldn't be entrusted with the management of the assembly of God. And at 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 8 where he basically says that a man that does not take care of his own, and especially of his kin, should be accounted with the faithless, with those who do not have the Christian faith because they are not part of it. Therefore, many of the Christian assemblies which Paul addressed were at the houses of particular individuals. Christians of substance gave space to others of their Christian brethren. And then, they all worked together for the common good of Christians everywhere, building wider communities through the examples which they were setting with themselves. However, when there are sinners, Christians must put those sinners out of their homes and their communities and have nothing to do with them. That's what Paul demanded of the fornicator in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The sinners, no longer being able to live, work, or have community with Christians, are then compelled to join themselves back to the wicked society. From there, they may either repent, or Yahweh God will see to their chastisement. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul had said such things of a fornicator, a man who had evidently slept with his father's wife, that he should be put out of the community. Paul was greatly offended that such behavior had been exhibited by an individual among the Christians at Corinth, and he urged that they excommunicate him. However, Paul did not have all of the facts of the matter, since he had indicated that he was not given a full account, but that he was able to determine through the Spirit who it was at Corinth. And Paul was there for a year and a half, so he was familiar with at least most of the Christians there. He was able to determine through the Spirit who it was who had committed the act.
We have already established in these studies that this first epistle to the Corinthians was written during Paul's final months in Ephesus, which are recorded in Acts chapter 19. Then Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians was written perhaps as long as a year later, as Paul was traveling from Macedonia into Greece to visit the Corinthians once more, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 20. In his second epistle to the Corinthians, we learn that the assembly did not put this fornicator out, but forgave him instead. Paul must have learned of this by a letter from the Corinthians, which he received in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, which is now lost. However, this is clearly the topic of his conversation in 2 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, which we shall now cite here. From the Christiania New Testament, starting with 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. Now, I appeal to Yahweh as a witness upon my soul that sparing you, I had not yet come to Corinth, because... I'm sorry, not because we lord over your faith. Rather, we are colleagues of your joy, for you are established in the faith. But I have decided this within myself, not to come back to you in grief. For if I grieve you, then who is gladdening me, if not he who is being grieved by me? And I have written the same thing, in order that coming, I do not have grief from those whom there is need for me to be delighted with, having confidence in all of you, because my joy is of all of you. From much tribulation, one Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 4. From much tribulation and anguish of heart, I have written to you through many tears in order that you would not be grieved, rather that you would know the love which I so abundantly have for you. Now, if anyone causes grief, he does not cause me grief, but in some part, at which I should not be burdensome, you all. Befitting such a one as this penalty which is by the many. Consequently, on the other hand, still more, you are to show kindness and encourage, lest perchance such a one would be consumed in more abundant grief. On which account I encourage you to confirm love in regard to him, for this also I have written, in order that I would know of your tried character, if in everything you are obedient. Now to anyone whom you are obliging, likewise I am. And for my part, whomever I oblige, if anyone I oblige, it is for your sakes, in the presence of Christ, in order that we are not taken advantage of by the adversary 
for we are not ignorant of his designs. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in verses 18 through 20, that some of the Corinthians had become indignant when they requested that Paul come to them, and he did not, but that he had sent Timothy instead. He sent Timothy with his first epistle to the Corinthians and promised soon to come himself. Here we learn that Paul made this decision because he did not want to have to deal harshly with the assembly where at least some of the Christians in Corinth had acted wrongly in the manner in which they handled the case of this fornicator. So Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians in one twenty-three, which we just read, Now I appeal to Yahweh as a witness upon my soul that sparing you I had not yet come to Corinth. Then Paul makes a statement which discredits entirely discredits any notion that he had ever asserted or that he had ever sought to assert any temporal authority over any Christian assembly where he says, not because we lord over your faith, rather we are colleagues of your joy for you are established in a faith. <clears throat> in other words, Paul did not ever play Pope. He wasn't trying to be a Pope. And those who later claimed to be Popes on the back of Paul are frauds. Absolute frauds. However, Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians must have grieved the assembly. And Paul addresses that issue in the opening verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where it becomes clear that the assembly had deliberated over this man who had committed fornication and over Paul's instructions regarding what should be done about it. Where Paul wrote in verse 6, Befitting such a one is this penalty, which is by the many, he refers to the grief which such a sin had caused the community. Then Paul wrote that consequently, on the other hand, still more you are to show kindness and encourage, lest perchance such a one would be consumed in more abundant grief, on which account I encourage you to confirm love in regard to him. Therefore, we see that the assembly chose to forgive this man rather than put him out of their community. And choosing to do so, it is evident that because they forgave him, Paul advised that their forgiveness be complete. The man portrayed here as grieving, therefore must have been <laughs> repentant of his sin. Where Paul wrote that he wanted to know of their character as to whether 
they had been obedient. He means obedient to Christ and not obedience to him. As he himself would not rule over their faith. Paul initially demanded that they excommunicate him. And instead they chose to forgive him demonstrating that Paul was not an authoritarian of any sort and that the assembly governed itself. Paul can only advise the assembly according to scripture, which will be one topic when we present 1 Corinthians chapter 7 here, Yahweh willing, in the near future. Finally, in closing, his discussion of this topic, Paul had written in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Not to anyone whom you are obliging, likewise I am. And for my part, whomever I oblige, if anyone I oblige, it is for your sakes in the presence of Christ, in order that we are not taken advantage of by the adversary, for we are not ignorant of his designs. In the King James Version here, we see the word forgive rather than oblige. Everywhere in the Gospel where forgiveness of sin is mentioned, the Greek word is aphiemi, practically everywhere. Aphiemi is literally a letting go of something. Here, however, the Greek word is karizomahi, Strong's number 5483. Karizomahi primarily means to say or do something agreeable to a person, show him favor or kindness, to oblige, gratify, favor, humor. Christians may be more familiar with the noun form of the word, which is charis. Charis is grace or favor, and that is the word from which we derive our English word, charity. To oblige someone, in a sense, where the word appears here, is to, is to do as someone asks or desires in order to help or to please them. Therefore, even though Paul had recommended that such a sinner be put out of the community because the community decided to forgive that person instead, Paul would be obliging. But Paul's kindness was not necessarily for the benefit of the sinner. Rather, it was offered for the benefit of the community so that no longer would there be grief and so that the adversaries, who are those antichrist devils outside, would not be able to use any disagreement within the Christian assembly to their own advantage. This is an important lesson which even identity Christians must learn to follow. However, if the fornicator of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 were an unrepentant sinner, the Christian assembly would indeed have no righteous recourse except to put him outside of their community. 
With this in mind, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul continues by discussing judgment in relation to the Christian assembly. And he says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, have it decided before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Christians should have nothing to do with the ungodly. Or at least while Israel is still in captivity, they should have as little as possible to do with them. We have to deal with them at certain levels, and we leave it there. We have as little as possible to do with the ungodly. Christ had to go before Pilate. He spoke to him. Pilate was most likely an Israelite from the ancient dispersions. Reportedly, he was a Gaul or a Roman from Gaul. And he was a pagan, so he was ungodly just because he was yet a pagan. Christ spoke to Pilate, but Christ also was taken before Herod, and Christ wouldn't talk to the Edomite bastard. Christians should have nothing to do with the ungodly. From the very opening lines of the very first psalm, Psalm 1, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law does he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They all bypass the judgment. They go directly to the lake of fire. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. In the Roman world of the first century, most everyone was a pagan of one sort or another, and most of those who were not pagans were Antichrist Jews. However, most Christians were formerly pagans, or they were formerly caught up in Judaism. Certainly, Christians had to interact with both pagans and Jews to some extent. For instance, Paul himself was a tent maker, and he had to sell tents to someone in order to obtain his daily bread. In all likelihood, he sold tents to both pagans and Jews. Yet the pagans were not necessarily ungodly simply because they had not yet heard the gospel. When Yahshua told Paul in a vision recorded in Acts chapter 18, For I have much people in this city 
He was not talking about Jews or Christians, but about the people of God and their dispersions regardless of their religious profession. While in Corinth, Paul was charged in a Roman court by the Jews, so he had to appear at the judgment seat of Gallio. While Gallio was evidently a pagan, he must have nevertheless been one of those people of God who acted fairly in judgment, and he neglected to hear the charges against Paul. Christians dragging each other into such courts. One of them is going to be damaged by the ungodly judge. Today, Christians are in a different situation. We have a justice system which developed a top of the foundation of Christian principles. It still has that perception of righteousness, but it sure as hell is not righteous anymore. These last two centuries, it has become very anti-Christian. Because not only has it been heavily infiltrated and even usurped by the Antichrist Jews and by their Talmudic principles, and it certainly has, but in addition, many of those Christians who remain engaged with it have completely turned away from Christ, and they too have adopted the Talmudic principles of the Jews. So today, our courts are just as ungodly, but for different reasons. Jewish humanism and Antichrist sentiment have destroyed our Western systems of justice. Therefore, Christians should certainly not initiate actions in worldly courts against other Christians. Christians should not put themselves or their fellow Christians before the ungodly. Doing so is the equivalent of committing oneself as well as one's brother into the hands of Satan. Rather, when a Christian is wronged and his fellow Christian is unrepentant, the Christian should inform the balance of the assembly and they should decide what to do in the matter. If the wronged Christian prevails, the fellow Christian should make appropriate amends. Or, if he does not, if he refuses to, if he remains unrepentant or, unrepentant or adamant about his wrong position, then he should be ostracized from the Christian community. And all Christians should pray that Yahweh Judge the sinner. That's what Paul's getting at at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As the psalmist wrote, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Therefore, do not put yourselves in worldly courts, and do not compel your Christian brethren to face worldly courts. How can you plead a case in a worldly court today, and not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, or stand in the way of sinners?
So Christ said in the famous Sermon on the Mount, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 5, But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Don't call the cops. The cops are ungodly. And if any man will sue thee at law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Don't be attached to your worldly belongings. They're not worth fighting over. Just give them to your brother, and Yahweh will replace them soon enough. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Christians must understand that Yahweh God will indeed punish all of those who would persecute his ecclesia unrighteously, after the manner whereby he punished the Assyrians and the Egyptians. In Luke, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the society? And if by you the society is judged, are you unworthy of the smallest trials? In Leviticus chapter 19, we see some of the guidelines which the children of Israel were to keep in judgment. Verse 15. You shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. But in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. And then a little further along in that same chapter, in verse 18, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh. So Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, speaking to Israelites about Israelites, he's only teaching the law. He's teaching the same precepts that we see in Leviticus. These are similarly repeated in Deuteronomy, where we see that in matters which were easily resolved, the children of Israel, or in, I should say in manners, in matters which were resolved without much difficulty. The children of Israel had instructions whereby they should judge one another within their own communities. Christians should act in like manner. From Deuteronomy chapter 16, from verse 18, Judges and officers shalt thou make thee in all thy gates, which Yahweh thy God gives thee, throughout thy tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment, after the manner of Leviticus chapter 19, to love your neighbor or your Christian brother as yourself. Thou shalt not rest judgment, Thou shalt not respect persons, 
neither take a gift. For a gift does blind the eyes of the wise, and pervert the words of the righteous. Yet only when the children of Israel could not make a decision in judgment for themselves, were they to go to the Levites, or to the appointed judge of Israel of the time, such as an Eli, or a Samuel. And we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 17, from verse 8. If there arise a matter too hard for thee in judgment, between blood and blood, between plea and plea, between stroke and stroke, being matters of controversy within thy gates, then shalt thou thou arise, and get thee up into the place which Yahweh thy God shall choose, wherever the tabernacle in the wilderness happened to be, or later on, wherever David and Solomon had the temple built. And thou shalt come unto the priests, the Levites, and unto the judge that shall be in those days. This could have been the Levitical cities. And inquire, and they shall show thee the sentence of judgment. And thou shalt do according to the sentence which they of that place which Yahweh shall choose shall show thee. And thou shalt observe to do according to all that they inform thee, according to the sentence of the law which they shall teach thee, and according to the judgment which they shall tell thee, thou shalt do, thou shalt not decline from the sentence which they shall show thee to the right hand or to the left. The children of Israel were to a large degree punished in the Assyrian captivity. They lost their right to keep the law of Yahweh because they had corrupted the laws and judgments of Yahweh. Therefore, we see Micah declare in chapter 3 of his prophecy, But truly, I am full of power by the Spirit of Yahweh, and of judgment, and of might, to declare unto Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob, and princes of the house of Israel, that abhor judgment, they were not judging justly by the law, and pervert all all equity. They build up Zion with blood, and Jerusalem with iniquity. The heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire, and the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon Yahweh and say, Is not Yahweh among us? No evil can come upon us. Therefore shall Zion, for your sake, be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. Their punishment for not correctly judging the people by the laws of God. In Zechariah chapter 7, we see a plea for just judgment among the remnant of Israel. He was one of the prophets of the second temple. Because the Israelites of the past had been corrupt in their judgment, where the prophet said, Thus speaketh Yahweh of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment, and show mercy and compassions, 
every man to his brother, and oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor, and let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. With this it is evident how the judges of ancient Israel had judged corruptly what they had been doing that was so wicked and to a great extent what Paul is warning about here. The word of Yahweh God expects his people to be able to govern their lives and communities justly by his law. That is what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 16, and that is what Paul attests is the plan for Christians here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The original plan of God has not changed, but because of the sin and the punishment of Israel, only over time had the circumstances and the labels changed. From Daniel chapter 7, I beheld, and the same horn, the little horn of Daniel 7, made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. That war is still ongoing today. If the children of Israel look forward to their ultimate destiny in Christ as kings and priests in his kingdom, then they must learn to judge the least banners before they can be entrusted with the great ones. They should therefore not bring their disputes before the ungodly, but learn to resolve their disputes among themselves and to hear the matters and to do so justly. They certainly should not resort to worldly authorities and devils with their problems. Verse 3 Do you not know that we will judge messengers or angels, let alone the things of this life? The Hebrew words El and Elohim, Strong's Numbers 410 and 430. Those words can refer to a God or gods, singular and plural, or they can refer to a judge or judges. According to the Gospel of John, Christ had interpreted it in the plural as gods. Since, I'm sorry about that. Since the Greek word for God does not carry the meaning of judge. But if one ponders the notion of a God, one may discern that one's judgment is fashioned after the form of one's God. Many of the most ancient lawmakers asserted that the laws they implemented came from their God. From the time of 
Hammurabi, at least, and ancient Babylon. Yet the gods of the heathen are idols. If a man makes his own law, he is his own idol, imagining himself to be a god. The children of Israel are only granted the position of sons and daughters of Yahweh their God if they conform themselves to Christ by necessity keeping his law. They are, by the fact of their birth, from Adam, sons and daughters of God. Deuteronomy chapter 14. Ye are the children of Yahweh Yahweh your God. But they're not recognized. They're not given that position of sonship. Unless they exceed to follow, to be obedient to his law. When they forsake his law, they merit his chastisement. This is the theme of the 82nd Psalm, a Psalm of Asaph. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. This is Christ among his people. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Defend the same complaints that Zechariah had. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Deuteronomy 14. But you shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Therefore, Paul instructs the Corinthians in chapter 5 of this epistle to expel the wicked from among themselves, handing them over to the adversaries of God so that they may be chastised in the flesh. Then here, Paul tells them not to bring matters of justice before the unrighteous. Christians should not accept the persons of the wicked and all of those who are not of Christ are indeed to be counted among the wicked. There's no such thing as a good Jewish judge. It's not possible. Not by the word of God. Likewise, from Psalm 149, we see absolute corroboration for Paul's statements here. From verse 1. Praise ye Yahweh. Sing unto Yahweh a new song and praise his praise in the congregation of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto him with the timbrel 
and the harp. For Yahweh takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute, Paul says that, the saints will judge the world. To execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute upon them the judgment written. This honor have all his saints. Praise ye Yahweh. Those not written in a book go into the lake of fire. And it's the saints, the people of God, who do the deed. The wisdom of Solomon speaks to the children of Israel and ostensibly to those of Israel who love their God. And chapter 1 opens with this admonishment. Love righteousness, ye that be judges of the earth. Think of Yahweh with a good heart, and in simplicity of heart seek him. Then in chapter 3 of the Wisdom of Solomon we read the following. But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God. There shall no torment touch them. In the sight of the unwise they seem to die and their departure is taken for misery. And they're going from us to be utter destruction, but they are in peace. For though they be punished in the sight of men, yet is their hope full of immortality. And having been a little chastised, they shall be greatly rewarded. For God proved them and found them worthy for himself. As gold in the furnace has he tried them, and received them as a burnt offering. And at the time of their visitation, they shall shine, and run to and fro like sparks among the stubble. Joseph will be a fire. They shall judge the nations and have dominion over the people and their Lord shall reign forever. If we examine this passage from the wisdom of Solomon alongside Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5 we see corroboration for everything Paul is saying. We see that the souls of the righteous who go astray are punished in the sight of men, yet is their hope full of immortality. And Paul says to send the wicked to be judged in the flesh, to be destroyed in the flesh by Satan meaning the wicked of the children of Israel in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Christian who committed fornication 
those outside Yahweh judges, putting them outside, they are destroyed by the adversaries of God in God's permissive will so that they are chastised. Yahweh uses his enemies to chastise his people. That's a constant theme throughout the Old Testament. So they are punished in the sight of men as the wisdom of Solomon says. Then Solomon says, yet their hope is full of immortality. And Paul says that the flesh would be destroyed, but the spirit would live in the day of Christ. With these citations, we should also perceive how Paul said that the saints of Yahweh shall judge the society, or the world, if you will have it, and even judge the messengers, or angels. <coughs> Excuse me. But the angels of Yahweh, who do his will, certainly do not need such judgment. So which angels shall be judged by the saints? The Apostle Jude, citing Enoch, may answer that question for us. Jude 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them, of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed. Yes, this is the King James Version. And all of their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. However, where Jude says, prophesied of these, by these he means those angels which kept not their first estate, who were reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, this very same judgment, to be executed by the saints. And they were the subjects, the very subjects of his epistle. So it seems that the children of Israel shall ultimately judge the fallen angels. And all of the ungodly bastards who proceeded from them, who were in the society at the time of Jude, and who are still in the society today, sitting in those ungodly courtrooms, and just about everywhere else we look. Verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So then, if you should have trial of things pertaining to this life, those who esteem themselves least in the assembly, those will be set to judge. The Nestle Alan text reads this verse as a question, which not even the King James Version has done here. 
However, many modern translations do follow the Nestle-Aland text in this instance, and with all certainty, reading this verse as a question, the result is precisely the opposite of Paul's original intent. The words, those who esteem themselves least, as they appear in the Christogenian New Testament, are translated from a substantive, a word or group of words, which is used as a noun. This substantive consists of a participle with a definite article. Tus exuthenamenus. Yes, that's how to pronounce it. Tus exuthenamenus. It's a tongue twister. There are modern Bible resources which list this form of the participle as being passive. Where we would have to write those who are least esteemed, or even, as some other translations have it, those who are despised. However, the participle form is not passive here, not in the Greek. Rather, the form which appears here clearly belongs to a medium voice participle, and therefore the subject both produces and receives the action of the verb. Since the verb exuthenio means to make of no account, or if it were active, it would mean to despise, then the medium voice form of the verb means to make oneself of no account, or it could mean to despise oneself. And therefore, Paul is teaching the Corinthians, and this is something that nearly all the translations miss, Paul is teaching the Corinthians to set the most humble men among them as judges in their disputes, those who esteem themselves least in the assembly. The most humble men in the assembly should be set as judges. The first clause in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 5 is, I speak from respect to you. Here the Greek word entrope is respect. This noun appears in the New Testament only here and in 1 Corinthians 15.34. But in the King James Version, on both occasions, it is shame. Liddell and Scott define this noun first as a turning towards respect or reverence for one. As Greek writers from the time of Sophocles had used it several centuries before, probably about five centuries before Paul, and then they define it as shame or reproach as the King James Version translators interpreted the word for their New Testament. We noted the similar use and definition of the verb entrepo, which is a verbal form of this same word, 
when we discussed 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. Now, a lot of people are going to think, I'm belaboring these words, and they are right. I'm belaboring them for good reason. As for my belaboring these interpretations of the words entrope and entrepo, while this may seem rather trivial and even mundane to most of the people who will listen to this, I am mentioning this as we proceed through our exhibition of Paul's epistles because there is a certain individual who has put forth my translations of these particular words as some sort of proof that I really don't know anything about Greek. He insists that the renderings in the King James Version are the only way to translate these words, and that they can only mean shame. That individual, whose name I will not repeat, but only say that it resembles the name of a typically meatless entree at an Italian restaurant, that individual is easily proven to be wrong, in these instances, merely by opening a Liddell and Scott or a Thayer's Greek-English lexicon. When I translated these words, I have followed the primary meaning of these words, as those lexicons clearly provide. As for the assertion that Paul is writing in this epistle to somehow shame the Corinthians, where the King James says here, I speak to shame you. I can't agree with that. It is absolutely not true. Rather, Paul has only been exhorting the Corinthians, and on account of them, as he explained in this epistle in chapter 4, on account of them, he transferred the illustration that he was making to himself and Apollos, ostensibly, so that he would not shame them. And that's what he was explaining in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Therefore, we should not imagine these words to mean shame, either here or in 1 Corinthians 4.14, since it would be contrary to the context of the epistle and it would contradict Paul's other statements elsewhere in this epistle. Some of my listeners are familiar with this debate over my translation skills and they might appreciate my explanation of these verses. So, otherwise, I'm sorry for the digression but I had to make it. The rest of verse 5. So, is there among you not even one wise who would be able to decide among his brethren? But brother is brought to trial by brother, and this before those not believing. The text of the Nestle Aland edition marks verse 6 as a question but the King James Version does not. I mention that because there are many places where I have, in chapter 4 especially, marked verses as questions that neither the King James nor the Nestle Land text nor many other texts have done. And, I, and, and I'd just like to illustrate that quite often it's a matter of um, 
the translator's opinion as to whether something should be a question or not. It's very subjective as to whether something... There are many words in Greek which are interrogatory particles, and, and we understand that the statements which follow them are definitely questions. However, there are many statements in Greek which can be interpreted as questions that are rhetorical in nature, and it's a matter of the translator's opinion and what he feels the context is. It's very subjective. There's a technical side of translation where certain elements of grammar mean definite things and, and it's really foolish to get them wrong because it's either technically correct or it's technically incorrect. But then there's an artistic side of translation which is subjective and, and, um, it, it's the translator's prerogative to do things, certain things, certain ways. We do not have the facts which describe what Paul is referring to here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, but evidently, whether it was connected to or perhaps if it was in addition to the problem with the man who had committed fornication, Evidently, there were disputes among the Corinthian Christians which resulted in an involvement with the worldly courts. And it was easier to drag somebody to court in ancient Greece than it would be today where you have to file paperwork, briefs, pay fees. In ancient Greece, we've seen this in the book of Acts where, where Paul and Silas are dragged before the magistrates. The magistrates sat in the open market and, and if you had an issue with someone, you went to the magistrates in the open market and if your opponent didn't come voluntarily or if you couldn't drag him, perhaps if you convinced the magistrates, they would send somebody after your opponent, and, and they would hear your case. So it was pretty easy to drag somebody to court. You went to the market to where the magistrates were, and you waited your turn in line, basically. We don't have all the details, but apparently... Among the Corinthian Christians, there was a problem and a dispute which resulted in somebody getting dragged off by a fellow Christian to these worldly courts. Paul is dismayed that the assembly in Corinth could not settle their own disputes in a Christian manner. And then Paul expresses outrage at the thought that a Christian man would bring his brother before a worldly and non-Christian court. And he says, so then, already there is altogether discomfiture among you, seeing that you have matters for judgment among yourselves. Why would you not still more be wrong? Why would you not still more be defrauded? The Greek word malon here is literally translated as still more. You want to wrong your brother bringing him into a court. Why would you not even more be wronged? You think your brother wronged you 
and you drag him to a worldly court, why would you not still more suffer damage? Here Paul continues to illustrate two problems. The first being that Christians have serious disagreements among themselves. They should not. They should search the scriptures and agree with Christ. The second is even more grievous, and that is that Christians would turn to worldly courts, which are indeed the counsel of the ungodly, in order to resolve their disputes. Paul's questions are rhetorical. If a Christian feels he is wronged by another Christian and seeks redress in a worldly court, he would rightfully deserve to be even further damaged by the result of his actions. And he says in verse 8, You would rather do wrong and defraud and this of a brother? The majority text has the plural, and these things of a brother. Bringing a Christian brother to a worldly and ungodly court is tantamount to doing him wrong by attempting to defraud him. That's what Paul's saying here in verse 8. Today, the worldly courts are the habitations of devils, and we should never expect any righteous equity from them. Or do you not know that the unjust or the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of Yahweh? Do not be led astray. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor railers, nor rapacious shall inherit the kingdom of Yahweh. First, those who would bring their Christian brethren into worldly courts are being put into this group. They are being likened by Paul to thieves and covetous or rapacious men. In the words of Christ, as they are, as they are recorded in Luke chapter 6, we read, And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that takes away thy cloak, Forbid not to take away thy coat also. Give to every man that asks of thee. And of him that takes away thy goods, ask them not again. And as you would that men should do to you, do you also to them likewise. Therefore Christians do not use worldly force to demand things of their fellow Christians. Yet there are other sins listed here which must, which must also be discussed, since the perception of these things are corrupted by the mainstream denominations and others having perverted agendas. In the King James Version, the 
plural form of the word arsenokoites is abusers of themselves with mankind. And there should be no doubt that the reference is to what we may call today homosexuals. The word homosexual itself is an excuse and a corrupted euphemism. We don't like it, but we used it for a purpose. When translating the Christogenian New Testament, I had wanted to write sodomites, which would have been entirely appropriate in the 18th or even in the early, I'm sorry, in the 19th or even in the early 20th centuries. Yet, I wrote homosexuals because I wanted modern readers to know exactly what Paul was condemning and that there should be no room to circumvent that condemnation. Homosexual is a perverted euphemism for sodomite. The Greek word. I've seen, I've seen, I'm, I'm lengthy on this because I've actually seen perverts contest that arsenokoites refers to sodomites or homosexuals. And it certainly does refer to that. In the King James Version, the plural form of arsenokoites, abusers of themselves with mankind, or homosexuals, is a compound word from the Greek word arsane and the Greek word coitus. Arsane is a male, and it is used in conjunction with other words to relate to men or to things masculine. The Greek word coitus is a place to lie upon, a bed. Coitus is masculine. The feminine form of that noun, coite, was used to refer to the marriage bed as the bed upon which, under normal conditions, men and women were married. The large ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott Greek English lexicon defines arsenokoites with only one word, sodomy. From Leviticus chapter 20, from verse 13, if a man also lie with mankind as he lies with a woman, both of them, both men, have committed an abomination they shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. There are people, especially those with a um, Roman Catholic upbringing, who believe that adultery and fornication are merely different terms describing the same act. Here we see that they are certainly distinguished as two differing acts since they are mentioned separately. There are others who are persuaded that both adultery and fornication describe illicit sexual acts between a man and a woman and that the distinction lies only in whether they have had a marriage ceremony in a church.
I've seen it defined that adultery is sex between two partners when one partner is married to somebody else. That's fair. But then I've seen them claim that fornication is sex between a man and a woman that are not married. And that's a lie. If a man and a woman are having sex, they are definitely married. When they're not married to each other, if one of them is previously married and not divorced, then they are committing adultery. If they are not married at all and they're having sex, then they're married. There's no doubt. There are others who have been taught that fornication is merely idolatry, since that is how the word seems to have been used in the Old Testament. Yet here we see that those acts are also distinguished as being different. Fornication is not idolatry. Paul mentions three separate sins. Fornication, idolatry, and adultery. Fornicators, idolaters, and adulterers. These terms can all be clearly understood. However, they cannot be understood under terms of the denominational sects of today. The organized religious sects do not understand biblical marriage and biblical divorce. So how can they understand adultery and fornication? There is no way, if they can't understand marriage and what marriage is, there's no way they can understand what adultery and fornication are. Only when proper terms, when proper definition of the terms for marriage and divorce are understood, only then can the meanings of adultery and fornication be properly understood. The Greeks believed that marriage happened in a bed. The koites was the marriage bed. Therefore, the word koite referred to the marriage bed. This is also the proper biblical understanding. In Genesis chapter 24, Abraham sent a servant, told the servant, Go get a wife for my son Isaac from among his kin in Padanaram. Isaac didn't go with the servant. Isaac did not see the woman that the servant brought back until the Bible describes what he did with her. There were no agreements. There was no wedding ceremony. There was no altar, no rings. There was no license, no blood tests. Abraham sent his servant, go get a wife for Isaac. Isaac did not accompany the servant on a trip. Genesis chapter 24. Here we'll read from the end of that chapter the result described from verse 63. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field 
at evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. That's the servant. And Rebekah, who's on one of those camels. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. She jumped off the camel. She was in a rush to see him. For she had said unto the servant, What man is this that walks in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, It is my master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. The servant explained what he did to Isaac. That he went to Padanaram and got this woman for him to have as a wife. There's still no wedding. There's still no altar. There's still no church. There's still no license. Verse 67. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. Sarah had died recently. And took Rebekah and she became his wife. And he loved her. And Isaac... was comforted after his mother's death. Rebecca, she gets off the camel, he brings her right to the tent. She becomes his wife. I don't think there was a pastor in that tent. I don't think there was a city clerk issuing licenses in that tent. I don't think that was going on. I think there was a coite in that tent. And she became his wife. When we see um, certain language which Paul employs in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we will see that Paul agrees that that is the way people become married. Without a doubt. As long as they're not married to somebody else at the time, because then... They would be committing adultery, of course. And they should be stoned. So if they're married to somebody else, there's a problem. If they're not married to somebody else, they can't commit fornication unless there's some strange flesh involved, Jude 7. If there's no strange flesh involved, they can't be fornicating because they're getting married. So fornication does not mean sex outside of marriage. It can. Sex outside of marriage is either marriage or adultery. One or the other. Well, as long as it's between a a, a man of age and a woman of age. There's other sins that we won't get into. Aside from their idea of um, marriage, which is biblical, as we see in Genesis chapter 24, the Greeks believed that they could simply put their wives out of their homes when they wanted a divorce. Get lost, you're gone, you're out of here. It's wrong, I'm not saying it's right, but it's what they did. It's sad, but it's what they did. They often did that. Now with this... 
the Bible basically agrees that a man who finds disfavor in his wife can put her out of his home. Except that in the Bible, in Scripture, for the protection of the woman, ostensibly, and so that there may be no undue charges against that woman or any man who takes her in, a requirement was made in the law for a bill of divorcement. That would protect the woman. From Deuteronomy chapter 24, when a man has taken a wife and married her, and it comes to pass that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. In the law of God, if we examine these things justly, Yahweh God has given a man the power to marry. And he has given a man an allowance to divorce. Only rather recently has the government or the Pope or the denominational sects assumed these powers and man has somehow unwittingly surrendered these powers to the government. If a man thinks that the government or that a pope or some priest can marry him, then the government and the pope and the priests are his God. The biblical definition of marriage is to take your wife to the tent. Take a woman to the tent and she becomes your wife. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with ceremony, with celebrating a marriage, with having a feast, with an affirmation of vows. That's all well and good. That's fine. That's noble. That's just. There's nothing wrong with any of that. And I would encourage it. But, don't say that that is the marriage. The ritual is not the marriage. The ritual can be nice to commemorate the marriage, and that's fine. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not the marriage. The marriage happens upon what we call today the consummation. That's the marriage. But do not replace the act of marriage with the ritual. The ritual is not the marriage. That's the mistake that all Christians are tricked into making is to take the, the ritual that the church offered and, and think that that is the act. That's a ritual. You're binding men to rituals. Who are you to bind men to rituals that Christ didn't bind? You can't bind men to a ritual. You're not. We all answer to God if we're Christians. We don't answer to other men in their rituals. God gave man the power to marry and man the power to divorce. 
And once we understand that, only then can we really start to get the foundation to understanding the differences between adultery and fornication. Understanding that marriage happens in the bed, one can also understand that there is no such thing as sex outside of marriage. It is either marriage, fornication, or adultery. One is either married upon the fulfillment of the sexual act, or one has violated the marriage of another, which is adultery, or one has committed fornication. In truth, there are no other options. Violating God's law of kind after kind, under which a man's wife should be flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, as it is manifest in Genesis chapters 2 and 29 and elsewhere, violating that, one commits fornication. Which the Apostle Jude describes as the pursuit of strange flesh. Fornication describes any of many illicit sexual acts, and race mixing is one, which is also evident here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What constitutes adultery is somewhat more complicated than the usual perception. In Leviticus, in chapter 20 in verse 10 we read and the man that commits adultery with another man's wife even he that commits adultery with his neighbor's wife the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death now in identity Christian circles people like to say that adultery is race mixing and in a way that is absolutely true. But you can still, obviously, from the law, commit adultery with another man's wife. And you should die for it. In Jeremiah chapter 29, in verse 23, we read in part, They have committed villainy in Israel and committed adultery with their neighbor's wives. Therefore, adultery can surely describe the act of an illicit union with the wife of another man of one's own people. Because if you're not one of the sheep, another sheep cannot be your neighbor. Because that's what the word means. It means to tend or graze and be raised up together. It means to be a part of the same flock. Your neighbor has to be someone of your flock. Speaking of people, of your tribe, your kindred, your people. So adultery can describe the act of an illicit union with a wife of another man of your own people. There it is, Leviticus chapter 20, Jeremiah chapter 29. But in the commandments of God, given in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we read in verse 18, Neither shalt thou commit adultery. And then in verse 21 we read, we read Neither shalt thou desire thy neighbor's wife. And in the Ten Commandments, adultery certainly seems to be more than simply having one's neighbor's wife. Because... 
in the Ten Commandments, these two sins, committing adultery and coveting one's neighbor's wife, are distinguished. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 2, from the Septuagint, the prophet says, in part, And adultery abounds in the land, and they mingle blood with blood. Blood mixed with blood describes race mixing. Even though they are separate sins, fornication and adultery are often associated, as they are in Jeremiah 13.27. I have seen thine adulteries and thine neighings, the lewdness of thy whoredom, and thine abominations on the hills and fields. The word for whoredom is from another related form of the same word often translated as fornication. The confusion over these terms, how they are used, and what sins they describe stems from the fact that all those who attempt to define them fail to recognize that marriage in Israel is twofold. First, there is marriage between a man and a woman. But transcending that, there is the marriage relationship of Israel to Yahweh their God. The relationship is mentioned in many places in scripture, such as in Jeremiah chapter 3, where it says, Turn, O backsliding children, saith Yahweh, for I am married unto you. And I will take you, one of a city, and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Having a sexual relationship with those of other races is a violation of Yahweh's law of kind after kind. And therefore, it is an illicit union. So Jude describes fornication as the pursuit of strange flesh. Paul also, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, equates a race-mixing event in Numbers chapter 25, where the children of Israel joined themselves to the daughters of Moab, not the idols, the daughters, and Paul calls it fornication. However, if an Israelite does such a thing, it's fornication, but it is also adultery because it violates the commandment of Yahweh that Israel remains separate from other races by going to the other races, the children of Israel cheat on Yahweh their husband. They commit adultery against God. From Psalm 135, For Yahweh has chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. The children of Israel were to stay separate, were to be peculiar ever since they received the law at Mount Sinai, as it is described in Exodus chapter 19. Peter is citing Exodus chapter 19 when he tells 
the Christians of Anatolia who are from the dispersions of Israel. In 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are in a elect race, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. If you don't understand the chosen race part, you should understand the holy nation part. A holy nation, not a holy church, not a holy conglomeration of all sorts of aliens, a holy nation, one people, a peculiar people. So that you should proclaim the virtues which from out of darkness you have been called the children of Israel in captivity into the wonder of his light. Both of these admonitions from the psalm and from Peter are both exclusive to the children of Israel. And both of them hearken back to Exodus chapter 19 and their relationship with God. Complicating this understanding is the fact that Israelites were permitted to marry people from other Adamic nations. However, the mixed and alien nations, such as the nations of Canaan, Israelites were forbidden to mingle with. Esau violated this and married Canaanite women. And in his epistle to the Hebrews, Paul calls him a fornicator. But Judah also violated this and married a Canaanite woman. And he is an example of God's mercy because of the promise to Jacob. Nevertheless, it says in Malachi chapter 2, Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh who he loved and has married the daughter of a strange God. Doing what Judah did, Yahweh will cut off the man that does this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob and him that offers an offering unto Yahweh of hosts. When Israelites marry people of other races, they too profane the holiness of Yahweh. That word hagios, translated holy from Greek, means separate and dedicated to God. When we marry people of other races, we become unseparate and we profane that holiness. This concept has not changed with the New Covenant, which was also made exclusively with the children of Israel. Therefore, in Revelation chapter 2, we see the following. Revelation. This is Jesus talking. Contrary to that mean old God of the Old Testament, this is kind, tender-hearted Jesus. I'm making a sarcastic pun on the way that the Judeo-Christians, they're not really Christians, on the way that they portray Christ. Because it's ridiculous. Because Christ is Yahweh from the Old Testament, and he is not changed. From Revelation chapter 2, we see the following. 
Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them to commit adultery with her. So adultery and fornication are related here. Into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds and it resulted of fornication, and I will kill her children with death. Oh, that sweet Jesus, he loves everybody. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. So now we see the words of Christ profess that he will kill the children of fornicators with death ostensibly because they're bastards. Yet the Israelite mixing with other races is also violating the commandments of Yahweh made with Israel and in his marriage relationship with the nation. Therefore, he's committing adultery as well as fornication. You commit fornication, you're sinning against your own body, as Paul's going to explain shortly in this epistle. But, by committing that fornication, you're committing adultery against your God. If, indeed, you are an Israelite. You can commit adultery against your wife by sleeping sleeping around. But you commit adultery against your God when you mix with other races. That's fornication. But it's adultery against God. Because Yahweh made with Israel a marriage compact with the nation and gave Israel laws to keep connected to that marriage compact. Therefore, committing race mixing is a violation of the compact and it's committing adultery against God. Violating those vows of marriage. Just as a wife would commit adultery by sleeping with a man other than her husband. Verse 11. And these things some of you may have been, but you have cleansed yourselves. Moreover, you have been sanctified. Moreover, you have been deemed fit in the name of Prince Yahshua Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Where the Christogenian New Testament has, you have cleansed yourselves. The King James Version reads only, but you be washed. The difference once again lies in the reading of a verb of the medium voice. Greek has three voices, active, passive, and medium.
in the active voice, the subject produces the action. In the passive voice, the subject receives the action. In the medium voice, the subject produces and receives the action. Now, there are some verbs of the medium voice that are used as deponent verbs and, and they might be used as passive or active. But, grammatically, verbs of the medium voice, as a rule, the subject produces and receives the action. But you have cleansed yourselves, you being the subject. Even Jezebel, according to the revelation of Yahshua Christ, could be given space to repent of fornication. So we see that adultery, fornication, and even homosexuality can indeed be repented of. However, cleansing oneself of those things means that one must put away the behavior and the consequences of it. One scriptural example of repentance from fornication is given in Ezra chapter 10. Now when Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children. For the people wept very sore. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God, and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives, and such as are born of them, according to the counsel of my Lord, and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God, let it be done according to the law. That means that the children were put away as well as the wives according to the law. A bastard shall not enter the congregation of Yahweh. So we see that the children of Israel in the days of Ezra repented of fornication by putting away all of their alien wives and the children that were born of them. If the departure from one's sin is not complete, then one has truly not cleansed himself. The reference to washing ourselves is not a reference to absolution, as the priests would use the term, but a reference to departure from sin in repentance. Christ has cleansed our sin. That's our absolution. Where, where we see in Revelation chapter 1 in verse 5 where it mentions, He who loves us and has released us from our sins with his blood. However, when the children of Israel accept Christ and repent, they are described as having cleansed themselves in Him. And we see the description of the innumerable multitude 
in Revelation chapter 14 where it says that these are they coming from out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and have whitened them in the blood of the Lamb. Some men, as Paul writes in Timothy, send their sins ahead to the judgment. Those are the people that recognize their sins now, repent now, and cleanse themselves of those sins now. Others take their sins with them to the judgment and will face Christ with them. Tomorrow night, Martin Luther, part 18. Next week, I'll be back with 1 Corinthians and the balance of chapter 6 into chapter 7, where we will continue to see how Paul of Tarsus perceived what constituted marriage. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.